This is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast, hosted by Roman Prokopchuk, bringing you all things digital marketing, tech, business, and motivation. What's stopping you from becoming relentless in all aspects of life? Are you ready to become a digital savage? Let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. Today I have with me Michaela Foster Marsh. Michaela is an acclaimed musician with three albums to her credit, whose work has appeared in TV and film. She's been invited to sing at the Monaco International Film Festival, the Cannes International Film Festival, and for Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. She is also the author of the book Star Child, and executive director of Star Child Charity. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much, Roman. Thanks for having me on the show. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about your journey. Obviously, that's a lot there to kind of uh, unpack. So tell me how you got started and how did <laughs> yeah. you kind of get into those, you know, several things that I've mentioned. You make me sound very interesting. <laughs> um, I guess um, I got into my songwriting after my adopted Ugandan brother died. And I had always been writing most of my life. It was really how I processed things and writing allowed me, I guess, to tease out a lot of my sorrows and um, I think just elements of loss. And so when Frankie died, my natural instinct was to write and I had been writing a lot of songs at that time and I had wanted to, I had written a song for the family and I'd wanted to record it and it was about Frankie and I had tried to do a home recording and it didn't turn out very well so I decided I was going to book some studio time in a local studio and I'd never been in a studio before. I had kept my music very private. It was just my own writing that I'd been doing probably since I was about 14, the songwriting. And when I went into the studio, I sat down and just basically recorded the song in a few minutes at behind the piano. And the engineer, I had booked three hours of recording time thinking that it would take me forever. And the engineer said, you know, do you have any more songs? Because you've booked three hours of time here and you've just recorded your song. And I was like, well, is that it? You know, and he said, yeah, you've recorded your song. So um, he said, do you want to play any more? So unrehearsed, I sat back down and I recorded about six songs. And, you know, from from there, um, the studio phoned me about a week later and said, I understand you recorded this you know, demo or whatever to send to your parents and why are you not taking this seriously because we think you could have a career in music and subsequently sent the songs to a couple of record companies in Toronto and one of the A&R reps, Bonnie Federal, had got back to me um, much to my surprise and said I think this is great, but I want to hear what you would do with a band and what how what production quality you want, where you want to go with this. So then I started to 
find some local musicians that were great and came highly recommended and worked on a couple of songs with them. Ended up winning some songwriting competitions. And before I knew it, I had quit my day job and been offered a production deal in Toronto and went down there to start working on my albums. So out of immense grief and sorrow, my world transformed overnight. And I really didn't think when I walked into that studio that I would end up having a career in music. I thought I was going in there just to simply record a very personal song for my family. So that that was the start of, of, of the musical journey. Um, yeah, and um, I was living in Canada at that point in time. And then my mum, my dad died about three years after Frankie. And I went back home to Scotland. And then subsequently my mum got very ill with ovarian cancer and I went back to look after my mum. And really felt at that point, um, I had lost all the significant people that I had loved in my life and regrouped, wanted to change my life, um, started to do an awful lot more writing. Felt that I didn't have enough room on the page with songwriting and really wanted to express a lot more. Again, I found the writing was just where I would, would, would work through grief and there just wasn't enough in songwriting anymore. So then I started to develop more skills for, for writing and wanted to ultimately write novels. And I think that a lot of the the grief that I'd gone through and also having been brought up with, with an adopted black brother, um, you know, I felt I had some stories to tell. And again, with the grief, I had started to write a fictional novel about Frankie and his adoption. We knew nothing about the mother. Um, it was all cloaked in secrecy in those days. And I had always been very, very curious about who Frankie's mother was, but it was something that we could never really discuss. And um, so I then started to use my imagination to write a fictional novel. And then after my mum died, I came across all the paperwork to do with Frankie's adoption. And that sent my imagination just riot. I just wanted to know more. It was like Pandora's box was opened. I got had a name for this woman, um, more of the background, a little bit, not an awful lot. But, um, you know, that led me my goodness, on a, a huge journey. And it's that journey that I write about in the Star Child book. So what started as a fictional book and is a fictional book uh, is now also the, the real story has been written called Star Child about that journey of finding my adopted brother's family 18 years after he had died. So, um, you know, finding that family it is a miraculous story and that is the story that is in, in the Star Child book. Um, I don't know if you want me to explain all of that, how I found the family. You know, to cut a very long story short, I ended up finding Frankie's family in Uganda um, and was so overwhelmed by the fact that I now had three Ugandan brothers 
you know, three new Ugandan brothers overnight. And I was also overwhelmed by the poverty that I saw and the amount of orphans that I saw and also, you know, quite disturbed by um, the adoption tourism that I witnessed um, in the country. And I came back home wanting to do something. And I felt I had a, a family there. I wanted to get to know them and understand the country, understand the culture. I didn't want to have just gone there and found the family and then that was the end of that. We we have built up a relationship since then. And um, I came back and we set up um, the charity Starchild in memory of Frankie and have now gone on to build a school for creative arts in Uganda. We have 110 children um, at that school. And... Um, you know, they're all learning the arts, various subjects in the arts and some vocational skills. We have a women's project as well with very vulnerable women and, and their children. And we have an education um, project for secondary school. We also support primary education. We have a sanitary care programme. We have a number of projects now in Uganda. And we're, the one that we're working on at the moment is the Sunflower Sanctuary in memory of my partner, Ronnie, who died last year. Um, and that sanctuary is for um, children and families affected with disabilities and autism. So there's a lot going on. We've accomplished an awful lot um, in a relatively short space of time. We built a school within two years of starting the charity and navigate a very complex country. Yeah, that's that's awesome how that's like a, a when you started from the beginning, it's like a whole web that built up with obviously your grief and then writing and sharing the song that led to obviously a career that led to a fictional book, then a non it's it's really interesting how all of that is connected and then obviously all of that charitable work as well. What is kind of the process if you know, obviously you found out like the papers you said about the adoption, what is kind of the process of adopting a child from Uganda? Obviously me and my wife have looked into adoption both in the US and from other countries because I mean, we've discussed obviously I'm a foster parent as well. I, we've had 20 kids in two years. So what is kind of like that process? Like you said, there is a lot of adoption, tourism and stuff like that. There is, there's a lot of that. The, the thing is that Frankie was born in Scotland. He was left in Scotland. Um, in 1968 and in 1968 I mean I maybe don't have to tell everybody now but we were in the height of the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King had just been killed and um, there was all these riots everything that we're seeing now is so reminiscent of what was happening at the year that my parents actually adopted Frankie and they did not set out to adopt a black child what happened was they put on the adoption form that they had wanted to adopt a hard to place child, meaning a child that had a disability or was maybe older because often they were left behind, particularly then. So the adoption agency had got back to my parents and said, we have a little black boy here who is hard to place. And he was obviously, was you know, um, very unusual in those days to see a black and a, a white child together and, and a black child being integrated into a white family. So I think what my parents did at that time 
was brave and it was a quiet stance against anti-racism in 68. I think what now they would be quite horrified at, at what is happening and, and how little has actually changed and that we really seem to be back back there. Um, you know, I, I, I hope that, that my book sheds a bit of light in, in the darkness right now and, and proves that a black and a white child can live in harmony and with a great deal of love and, and that that love you know, has transcended the borders. I work in that country now in Uganda. It's transcended the time. You know, Frankie died at the age of 27 and um, it was 18 years after his death that, that I started to work in, in his memory more full time. And and um, so I, I hope that the, the, the book shows that, that, that even after, after death, that love that I have for Frankie still goes on um, today and and hopefully that that can help. So the process for my parents was very, very different um, because Frankie had been left here. They hadn't gone out on a mission or gone out to Uganda in the hopes of, of adopting a, a black child. So we we were, he was, I think he was just meant to come to our family. And as you say, I mean, the journey has just been absolutely incredible i mean who could have predicted what would have transpired over all these years from frankie's death and then i also think even the timing of the book you know there's been so many delays with that book and i felt it would never get published just like i felt at one point somebody didn't want me to go to uganda because i'd had so many hold-ups but when I actually went to Uganda, it was like I was a puppet. It, as if it had been orchestrated my entire life so that I could find that family. And, you know, there is a continuous thread that connects us after death. I'm convinced of that now. And I think the book shows that the way it unravels and the way it unfolded for me, the synchronicities that happened, the coincidences that happened in order for me to find his family, were absolutely incredible. But what I did find, going back to your question about adoption in Uganda, I uncovered a really, I think a really dark side to adoption. And I think that there's a lot of people unwittingly feeding into adoption tourism. I don't think they're aware, a lot of them, um, they might be going with you know a good purpose and um, feeling that they're going to help the situation, but sometimes it's 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 making the situation worse. I mean, you have to ask yourself why there's been such a jump in the number of orphanages in Uganda since the early nineties. Um, you know, after a civil war and an AIDS epidemic, the number of orphans and orphanages have actually increased. And half of the children that are in these orphanages aren't even orphans. Um, a lot of them have parents. A lot of people don't realise that. Some of the orphanages that are running, I think there's over 500 unlicensed orphanages in Uganda. 
and you would need to make sure that you did some due diligence on the organization that you're working with and and just because they say they're a christian organization does not necessarily mean that they're not operating on you know um corruptly um you know the the culture is um corrupt and um there's a lot of of cheating goes on a lot of backhanders a lot of chai gets paid judges can get paid off i mean children can be exedited really easily through the system and i know that some people you know have have abused that they're trying to tighten it up in uganda but um you know you need to ask yourself as well is the home that you're looking at are they interested in reunifying the, ch- the children with their families because quite often it's the case that maybe a child's been put into an orphanage because there might be only one parent and they can't cope they think that the home might provide them with food and with shelter and with an education would it not be better maybe to help by sending money to agencies that are maybe helping to keep families together in Uganda um you know it's not always the best solution to take a child away um and you know i'm not i'm not obviously not against um transracial adoption by any means i mean frankie was the biggest gift in our life albeit that we didn't go to uganda to find frankie um you know to adopt so i'm not against it but i do think that there are other ways of helping uh, families stay together in uganda or in countries like Uganda and that if you are seriously thinking about adopting then you really need to look hard at at the, at the home you're dealing with the people you're dealing with and whether or not they have done checks to make sure that that child really does not have any existing family sometimes they might even have like a a, a brother or a sister maybe a parent has died but they might have external family but they can't take the child on because they can hardly feed the mouths that they have so if there's a, a you know if there's a way that that you can support families there as well there's a lot to be said for that if it's just that you want to offer support to vulnerable children if you do want to actually physically adopt then you know i think you need to spend a lot of time doing your homework to understand the system or you'll get embroiled in in a process that really is is doing nothing but exploiting children and you don't really know if they actually have family a lot of these homes keep the children looking impoverished as well um because that 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 helps bring money i mean the, the first time i went i was quite naive and you know i gave quite a bit of money and um and also we gave a lot of of gifts and and clothes and beautiful things i never saw anything appear in the home i never saw the children wearing them i'm quite sure that the matron they were packed up and taken to her house and that her children were wearing all the, the the beautiful things that we had we had gifted so i mean i learned quickly and I, I learned on my feet and you know i also witnessed people buying children like they were buying a new handbag which is really upsetting and and um you know and so we have really you know we spent a, a very short period of time working with orphanages and now we really we we just do not um unless we really know what they're all about we've set up our own programs and um and work and work in different areas but i am not an expert on the adoption process i know some people who have adopted in uganda 
and um, I know that they were offered, um, you know, expedited routes where people would would um, benefit financially. And and you know, unfortunately, we are we are unwittingly feeding into that adoption tourism in- industry and also fallen tourism. You know, there's a lot of um, kids. We've got a lot of of um, teenagers and and people going out on these holidays um, to volunteer. And um, again, many of them are, are volunteering in orphanages. And you know, your trip might have cost three or four thousand pounds. And you know, you just have to ask. You know, you're maybe you know it's thirty pounds to to a hundred or dollars or to a hundred dollars a night for some of this accommodation. You know, they're, they're making a lot of money out of this. And and then they know that you're going to go back home and maybe tell your parents or other people about all these poor children that you were working with, and so it's a kind of gravy train that, that, that you know that that these people are on. And could that three or four thousand pounds that you used in order to get there for your experience be used in a better way? Again, I, I'm not knocking going out and having that experience, although I do I. I do think again you need to plan are you just going to go out there and you know no offense but are you just going to go out for a couple of weeks hold a few children get some social media nice pictures taken and then absolutely do nothing you know because that's what they're hoping that's what they're they're living off is our white experience of going out there and it's 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 quite patronizing and offensive to some black people and that that's getting us into the realm of the white savior where there is a big issue at the moment in in countries like Uganda, and there's a, a lot of resentment. And again, you know, the white savior, you know, where does that that come from? What again? They're not really looking at the issues that that they have caused. And I mean, you could class me as a white savior. You know, I I, um, I, I criticise that a lot, but some people could could accuse me of, of, of doing that very thing. But I really do work very, very hard at, at, at trying not to, to just do that. Um, and I have my own, obviously, deep-seated reasons for wanting to help. And I, I do have a legitimate family in Uganda that, that are Frankie's brother. But again, you know, we've, we've got this racism issue has reared its ugly head and and thank God, you know, we're finally beginning the pennies dropping that this wound has been festering for a a long, long time and it's very, very raw and and it needs dealt with. And there needs to be an understanding. Um, You know, we need to look at the history of of this trauma and um, there needs to be some I think some powerful but calm sensitive voices speaking out at the moment and and educating us all the past generations and the new generations about where this historical racism comes from and things that have been swept under the carpet that we're not prepared to look at as as western society or countries um but at the same time I don't think that we should be self-flagellating and, and uh, suffering the guilt of, of sins of our ancestors and, and uh, you know. But it needs addressed because the other side of that is you've got your white saviour and, and I often wonder where that, where what, what's causing that response? 
you know, where's that guilt come from that's fueling the white saviour and and a kind of almost self-flagellating over over this that's causing them to want to go out to countries like Uganda. So and and I'm all for all the help. I mean, you know, I need it out there, but it just has to be, it's not a playground. And so many people, I think some white people treat it like a playground and it's not. And you can't just go in there for a couple of weeks and throw your ideas around with no sensitivity, no understanding of the culture and expect to actually be doing any good. So, you know, I'm always looking for people to help with things, but it can be counterproductive and, and there's rather reckless volunteerism going on and adoptions going on. But there's also a fabulous, wonderful, beautiful side to it. It just depends how much effort you're prepared to put into looking seriously at what you're about, what you're doing. Um, and I, again, I would not want to put you off that, that adoption process um, if you were seriously thinking about doing it. Because as I've said, I, I couldn't imagine not having had Frankie in my life. And, um, you know, but but I just have witnessed so many things that that have, have upset me and I don't feel are right. And I, I, I talk about some of that in the book as well. I do go into a bit more detail, but I talk about it within my own context, which is really all I can do is speak about my own experience and how I've seen this through, witnessed it through my own lens. And I'm sure that other people have had, had different um, experiences, um, but I, I didn't get an overly positive experience in, in some of the orphanages. There are some wonderful agencies out there that are really fighting hard to, to change the system in Uganda. And I would suggest that, you know, maybe people get in touch with some of those agencies. Um, you know, I, I might be able to, to point people in the right direction. But, um, you know, but this is this is my story. And Frankie was certainly brought up here. He never set foot in Uganda. He knew nothing about his Ugandan heritage. Um, just sadly, just before he died, he was only just starting to become interested at that point, which I think really drove me to almost do that for him. It was like a pilgrimage of sorts. And again, that speaks of how much love that I had for my brother, you know, despite our differences. He he was, he, he was you know, closer than my blood brother. I have a, a blood brother who I'm not particularly close to yet. Frankie and I were, were immensely close. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's important, like you said, doing things kind of for the right reasons. I know people go to a different country, oftentimes third world countries, like you said, volunteers for, for a week or two, get that kind of feel good, you know, you know, I did something and then leave and have no kind of tie. But I think it's important, obviously, you had kind of that vested interest and background already to help genuinely help. And I think, like you said, just giving money is not necessarily the solution. You don't know where it's going in terms of a charity. So if you want to do something, yeah. So just basically, I think, try to be the change, basically. If you want to do a specific thing in a specific area or broadly, try to rally people together and then build something and do it yourself because then you know 
where that money is going, where that volunteer time and what really impact you're actually, you know. Yeah, or work with people that you know actually get the job done. I mean, we built a school for £16,000. We got quotes of £100,000. We know there's people out there, there are charities out there that spend easily £100,000 building a school. But we work with the community, we worked with them. You know, maybe the fact that I've got some black brothers out there, you know, they they laugh at me because, you know, they think, oh, Michaela's, you know, because um, I'm, I'm a white woman and, and um, women are, are, you know, it's usually the men that do the business deals and, you know, I'm out there telling them, no, go, go back to the drawing board and give me a figure that's that, that's a real figure, you know, because they're always going to try and, and um, shaft you. And, you know, that's human nature. They'll try and bump the price up as high as they can get. So, you know, I, I've been used to navigating the country now. And, um, you know, it, it's a complex country and you can't expect to know how it works. I'm still figuring out the subtleties and all the nuances and how they operate. And, um, you know, but I do have that advantage of, of having that family and, and th- that relationship. Again, I couldn't expect to know those brothers overnight. You know, the, 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 the really difficult thing emotionally, I think, for me was the fact that the first brother I met was called Frank and looks like Frankie. And, and so for me, I'm looking at this boy going, he's my brother. I've got a new brother. Isn't this wonderful? And and all the time, they've grown up in completely different cultures, completely different worlds from each other. And um, But for me, every time I look at him, I keep seeing my brother Frankie. Um, but I had to get you know past that and realise, no, that I'm dealing with a completely different family that know nothing about my life in Scotland. I know nothing about them. But let us come together. Let you will. We're somehow been brought together. The universe has brought us together through a long history. Their mother gave up my brother um, in 1968, and here we are in 2020, working together in Uganda, trying to still figure each other out. But that's what's so lovely and wonderful about it. And so I have learned through them as well how to operate properly. And, and gain some respect. And it works both ways. I have to respect them and they respect me, but that has been hard earned. I can assure you it did not happen overnight. Um, th- those relationships I've had to work hard at building and, and the trust has had to, to work both ways. And, um, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not knocking other charities, but they, they might not just have the same emotional investment that, that perhaps I have in, in, the, in the projects that we do. And so, and also I don't have a huge amount of money at my disposal. So, and I feel responsible for the people that have given me that money. We built this charity up on the back of most of my friends and, and Facebook friends. That's how we developed that charity. So um, I feel I need to honour them by getting the best that I possibly can, you know, for for the for the money that we have. Um, so there are charities that, you know, have a couple of hundred thousand sitting around and they can chuck it at, at building a school. But you know, we're working all the time at making sure that that project is 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 working properly. I, I've heard of other people, you know supposedly building orphanages or building churches in Uganda and nothing was getting done at all. You know, they were just sending pictures. 
and um, they were just building extensions onto their own house and things like this. I mean, the stories, you know, and the book has got some stories like that in it where people have been just completely hoodwinked and taken advantage of. Well, you know, if you want to operate like that and you don't even want to go out and, and try and suss out, you, you know, what's going on, then, well, you're going to get ripped off. There's no two ways about it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I'm saying the, the, the country is corrupt as a whole, but if you if you find people that you can work with, then, you know, it's, it's about building really strong relationships and also partnering with other people. Once you actually find your partners there, the people that you can work with, that is also really beneficial because you can achieve more together than you can on your own. So, you know, especially with our disability and, and autism project, we need partners there. We need people that we can trust, that we can build that that community together. Um, so I think that's been a really, it's been evident that that's also been a really strong part of our journey is that we have found the right people to work with on the ground in Uganda and, and partnered very successfully with them. And again, that doesn't happen overnight, um, you know, so... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a growing process. And I think it's kind of uh, obviously interesting how you jumped into that as well. So what's one kind of piece of advice you can give somebody? Obviously, everyone goes through something in life, you know, a loss, you know, a loved one, a family member, you use music, and then obviously writing as well, because I, I think I'm sure the writing was therapeutic as well. How can people kind of use that to cope? And then also, if somebody's actually, you know, wants to do something in terms of organizing something, how did you kind of go about it? Obviously, you did it in another country, but people can help in their own communities as well. Some of the kind of, you know, grassroots thing or how you got started or how you made that initial leap as well. I mean, there's a there's a lot in there, what, what you're saying. Um, I think if I go back to the grief question, then I think that for me, grief has always brought about a metamorphosis in my life. I mean, I have now come to the stage where at 27, I lost my brother. 29, I lost my father. 38, I lost my mum. And 52, I lost my, my partner. And they've all been very, very different griefs. They've all been extremely hard. I mean, I only lost Ronnie less than a year ago and I'm still trying to come to terms with that um, because I, I've lost my total soulmate in life and, and I don't know what the future is going to be for me. And it is scary and it's frightening, but I know that, that grief forces change and I think my life has never been static and I think that extremely painful situations, they do forge a new life and it's not being afraid of that transformation and allowing the, the universe to propel you. The worst thing I think we can do is become stuck in victim mode. It would be really easy for me to just say, oh, uh, you know, life's been really cruel. I've had so many losses and um, I've lost all my family at a young age and now my partner. Everyone has a story. It's how you respond to that story that's important and um, and rise to the challenges. And again, Uganda has, has taught me the privileged and the oppressed. It, it all, we all have problems and it's about your strength, strength of spirit. Um, it's easier said than done, but but really, I think um, for me, I just 
refuse to become a victim of, of anything. And at some point in our lives, I think we're all called to, to heal and um, transform and transcend. And for me, some of the most interesting people I've met in my life are people who have been able to do that. You know, I've met other people that are just been stuck in the same pattern their entire life. And they're afraid to rock the status quo. They're afraid of change. Whereas with myself, I've maybe not had that. What's happened to me is that it's been forced on me. The changes have been forced and that as usually the metamorphosis has come about out of grief. Like if you go went back to the beginning with Frankie, Frankie's death propelled me into the music business. And then my mum's death, you know, the writing, the, the book writing, because I've, I've uncovered the other, you know, the information about Frankie. So um, I think that you just have to you know, realize that life is difficult. It is difficult for everyone. We've all got pain and trauma and things that we have to try and and get over. And so the, the most, I suppose the advice I would give is have your pity party. You know, I've done it. You sit on the floor with a bottle of wine and ball your, your <laughs> eyes out. We've all done it, but you cannot stay there. And just making a couple of steps moving forward i think that the universe supports that it supports movement and growth it doesn't support people being static and even if you don't know what that what it is it's better to do something than nothing when it comes to the charity i was overwhelmed i thought how can I help? I remember being the first time I was ever in the orphanage. It was such an emotional experience for me because any one of the children could have been Frankie. And I came away from the home that day and I just cried my eyes out. And I said to my partner, Ronnie, what can I do? I want to help, but I don't know how. I just, this is overwhelming. The country was overwhelming. It was just, I, I was just sitting there going, I'll never be able to do this. And, you know, I wasn't particularly maternal. I knew I wasn't going to maybe take 10 babies home or anything as much as I might have wanted to pack them in a suitcase and you have that instant feeling. I knew that it was it was something else. And, you know, it just grew out of, of a determination to do something. And, and then people came to the table. Things started to just work themselves out. And I... I sort of remembered a story that my dad had told me when I was a child about the, the starfish story. You can you can look it up if you want. I'm sure it's online. But basically, it's 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 about not being able to save everybody and and not taking that on board. That you just focus. You bring it down to the one child that you can help, the one family that you can feed, you know, the one child that you can give an education to. You know, the smaller, when it becomes overwhelming and when I feel that I can't, then I bring it back round to that story that my dad taught me when I was a kid about the starfish, about saving the one. It made a difference to one. So, you know, it's really easy for me sometimes to focus on what I haven't achieved. And I think we're all guilty of that. And sometimes we forget about what we actually have achieved. So I, I look at that... Um, as, as a you know just to, to ground me again when when it becomes a bit too overwhelming and and also 
I really ground myself with a lot of meditation and, and prayer. And I, I believe that, this is my personal belief, that there is a continuous thread that connects us after death and that we, we haven't really died, that the physical body has. And so I believe very much in being able to co-create with the deceased. And I, I use that. Now, some people might think, oh, you're mad, that's not possible. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. But for me, that helps me. I believe that I get help when I really need it. And But I have to ask for it. I have to speak. I have to con- have a conversation. And so quite often in the mornings, my first thing I do is I'll light my candles and, and I give gratitude for the day, no matter what that is. And uh, I'll do a short meditation. Sometimes I do a long meditation. I think they're becoming longer since lockdown. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I try and speak about what's on my mind and I for help and for guidance. And I believe that I get it. That That's just the, the way that I, I think. So I do believe in, in, um, in, in prayer and meditation. And for me, it centers me, it grounds me and it helps me cope. So, you know, that that's um, hopefully, um, I don't know if it's advice, but it's how I, I certainly operate. No, I mean, that's, I definitely agree. And, I'm, you know, I do similar things to that extent as well. So I really appreciate you stopping by today. How can people find the book more about you? Or if they obviously want to help your charity, how they can do that as well? Well, they can find the book Star Child. Um, on Amazon at the moment. I don't think there's any bookshops open, but um, it's certainly available um, around the world on Amazon. And um, you can find myself at MichaelaOnline.com. I'm very accessible. You can contact me there or through the charity, which is StarChildCharity.org. You can also contact me directly through the charity. And we'd love to to hear from, from you out there. Awesome. Thanks again for stopping by today. Oh, no, thank you. Thanks, Rowan. Thanks so much for inviting me onto the show. It's been great. My pleasure. This podcast has been brought to you by Nova Zora Digital. Find out how Nova Zora Digital can help your company grow online. Learn more at NovaZoraDigital.com. Until next time, all you digital savages.